Welcome to the Little Red Podcast, which brings you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. I'm Grant Smith from the ANU's Department of Pacific Affairs, and I'm joined by my co-host, Louisa Lin, former China correspondent for the BBC and NPR, now with the Centre for Advancing Journalism at Melbourne University. We're on air thanks to support from the ANU Centre on China and the World. Today, we're tackling one of the pressing questions of our time. Is China trying to win control of the global order? We've seen Beijing slowly and steadily building its influence in multilateral institutions. Now, Chinese nationals head four of the United Nations' 15 specialized agencies. And elections to these bodies have increasingly become open contests between the U.S. and China. In an era where the U.S. is increasingly withdrawing from these global bodies, what does that mean for the future? To discuss China's changing role and the response of Western nations, we're joined by three experts on international organizations. Sophie Richardson, the China Director at Human Rights Watch, trade expert Wei Huan Zhou from the University of New South Wales Law School, and freelance journalist Hinek Feldwich, who is the co-founder of MedWatch. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having Thanks. us. Let's start with a quick whip around. In a, in a sentence or two, in the last five years, uh, just how much has China increased its influence in the institution that you study? Uh, so I think we'll start with Sophie, then Wei Huan, then Hinok. Human Rights Watch has looked fairly closely at China's role in UN human rights mechanisms, the Human Rights Council, other parts of the system, special procedures who are experts mandated to look at particular issues. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that China has both advanced its efforts to change norms and institutions and, you know, while simultaneously not complying with some of the expectations, particularly of Human Rights Council members, but also it's become a much more sophisticated player in orchestrating support for some of its initiatives that it doesn't necessarily want to have to front itself. And so in that sense, you know, the UN system, we think, is under real threat uh, from the Chinese government's agenda in these kinds of institutions. Uh, um, so the institution I'm, I'm really focused on is the World Trade Organization, the WTO. From that perspective, I, I think China has been maintaining its influence from the early times. China had a little bit of a learning curve from the very beginning since joined the WTO in 2001. But since around, I think, 2008 onwards, China has been playing quite a stable and increasing role. Um, but the influence of China on the institution, um, I would say, is still kind of limited. Um, and given that there are other big powers in the institution, and uh, we all know what, what is happening um, in the past few months, uh, the U.S. influence has almost killed the institution and trying to uh, drag an institution into uh, what the U.S. wanted. Then China, on the other hand, has been trying to defend the, the integrity of the institution, trying to influence from the other ends and counteract the U.S. influence with other cooperators like the EU. We can come back to that point later on. But I think China has been playing a positive way, um, despite the fact that the, there are other issues that China um, has been criticized on, uh, which we can come back on. And Hinek. Yeah, I had a closer look um, at the role between China and the World Health Organization concerning COVID-19 for an article in the magazine Foreign Policy. Um, with the WHO, uh, it's quite, 
quite clear that China had an increasing role for many years already. Um, the predecessor of the current Director General, um, Dr. Tedros, so the predecessor was Margaret Shen from Hong Kong, who was elected with the help of uh, mainland China also in 2006. 2017, Dr. Tate was, uh, was elected as her successor and in recent years and especially in the last month, I think it's quite clear that Beijing had an increasing um, influence on the WHO. There has been influences uh, all along the time of the WHO, of course, the United States for a long time has been a major player in the WHO, but uh, currently, as we all know, um, there is a shift and um, apparently, uh, Beijing has a larger say in the organization. So in each of these bodies, China's role has been increasing. I mean, it just strikes me now as a particularly interesting time to have this conversation. Uh, in the last few days, we've seen Beijing basically tearing up the whole idea of one country, two systems in Hong Kong through its decision to impose national security legislation on Hong Kong through the NPC, through Annex, Annex 3 of the Basic Law. I mean, is that something that is overshadowing this whole conversation, the fact that China is not keeping to its own agreements in this case? What does it mean, really, for the future of these multilateral institutions where China is playing an increasing role? Uh, Sophie, you, your thoughts first, maybe. Well, I think what we've seen uh, Beijing say it's going to do in Hong Kong over the last couple of days is just one of the most, uh, I think, blatant examples of the same pathology, which is that the Chinese government will sign agreements or say it's going to abide by the rules of international institutions and then not do that, and in some cases do uh, the exact opposite. Uh, one of our I think, greatest concerns at an institution like the Human Rights Council. Let's, let's remember that you know, the, the international human rights architecture exists because states either fail to protect people in their countries or they abuse them themselves. And you know, these, so these institutions are critical for people who don't have institutions domestically that they can go to for some kind of redress. And the idea that the Chinese government, which is, as you've just said, just gutted... <laughs> The basic idea that, that Hong Kong was meant to be autonomous is now introducing resolutions at the Human Rights Council, gutting some of the basic norms that underpin those bodies, you know, that create a role for independent civil society or, you know, perform the function of holding states accountable. You know, these are two ideas that, that we're watching Beijing try to slowly but steadily excise from these institutions. Uh, and there's no organized pushback against that a little bit in the same way that, you know, no government seems to have figured out anything, you know, any way of responding to developments in Hong Kong other than saying we think the one, you know, one country, two systems is the way to go when that's clearly not what Beijing is doing. Hinek, what about in the World Health Organization? It seems that China's managed to really leverage its status as the source nation of the pandemic to increase its influence in the WHO. Do events in Hong Kong give you kind of pause for concern? Many uh, events give me a cause of concern. The current situation in Hong Kong, where um, their own contracts are not being pulled up to anymore, provides reason to 
doubt that China will stick to international standards in every time and in every case, and that can be bad for the health of the people of the world. By the same token, though, I mean, the US is stopping its funding for the WHO, and that's last year's $400 million, 15% of the budget. China is promising $2 billion to fight the pandemic. Surely that's got to be a good thing, no? China does a lot um, and also provides help for other countries, but it's not always in the best interest of the, the countries, unfortunately. The, the $2 billion uh, dollars that uh, will be provided won't be provided to the WHO, apparently, but they will be provided according to the interests of Beijing. It's, it's a very clear sign that the Trump administration will step back from providing support for the WHO. I would assume that um, the Chinese government will step in and take the opportunity to uh, steer the WHO into a direction that, it's, uh, that is more preferable to it. So, Hinek, to, to drill down a bit more into the WHO's response, I mean, one thing that would surprise me is um, we have a former ambassador, Jeff Raby, uh, who's generally seen as being extremely pro-China, and he castigated Dr. Tedros for being extremely naive in his dealings. So when they went there, they had a guided tour. They put out a report that praised China's effort as, quote, the most ambitious, agile and aggressive disease containment effort in history. Uh, they even praised the use of traditional Chinese medicine and changed the advice on their website that was against using alternative remedies to fight COVID. Why are they doing this, uh, first thing, and what kind of ramifications does this treatment have for the future of the WHO? I think the first praise in January of the Chinese regime um, was motivated by pleasing the government also in order to have this um, expert mission to China in February or to establish contact or so to China. I think it's it's reasonable not to totally uh, confront China with the situation in, in Wuhan in January already, because um, that could lead to a situation where the links are totally blocked and um, where there will be no information coming from Chinese authorities anymore. But um, the other option to, to praise the regime and to praise its response uncritically uh, is as bad at least, and they uh, succeeded in having the mission to, to China, but the uh, circumstances of that mission, as you said, um, are very un unfortunate. Um, the report couldn't contain uh, the information that international experts wanted to write into it because uh, the Chinese side intervened in some regards, and um, the information that came was not accurate and um, good enough to really inform the world about the disease as much as it would have been possible. Hmm. But if I could follow up on the TCM question, I mean, why is an organization like WHO endorsing traditional Chinese medicine, which hasn't been scientifically proven? It's, uh, it does seem a, a little bit strange for a body that is built on, on scientific um, and scientific medical advice. I also think that it's a quite strange development. The WHO also says um, that um, all medicine has to be proven to be effective. And on the same hand, um, it allows uh, traditional Chinese medicine to be promoted and to have a, a role in the uh, fight against the disease. Um, there's a contradiction there. The Chinese government for several years now tries to use traditional Chinese medicine um, to increase its exports internationally and has a global push to 
bring forward uh, this kind of uh, treatment that, as you said, um, isn't proven to be effective in most cases for some uh, for some pharmaceuticals. Uh, perhaps there's some efficacy, um, but uh, most of it isn't. Unfortunately, I think uh, we only can speculate about the reasons, but um, I think it fits to the image that the WHO tries to to please Beijing and gives the traditional Chinese medicine a role that it probably shouldn't have. Let's talk about the UN. Sophie, in April this year, China also kind of stepped up in the Human Rights Council, being one of only five nations appointed to the consultative group. And at the time, it was described by the executive director of UN Watch, Hillel Nua, as like making a pyromaniac into the town fire chief. What do you think China's agenda is here? The consultative group is a little bit inside baseball. This is a body that essentially reviews candidates for the special procedures positions. There are about 40 of these. You know, and it's meant to make recommendations to the Human Rights Council president about who should fill these positions. And there are some safeguards along the way. You know, the president doesn't necessarily have to take the consultative group's advice. The full Human Rights Council has to vote on these slates. You know, and it certainly has been the case in the past that even with you know, abusive authoritarian regimes sitting, sitting on the consultative group, that very strong uh, mandate holders have been chosen and done a great job criticizing governments, including ones that had people on the consultative group. So it's not the case that, for example, the consultative group sets the Human Rights Council's agenda. But, you know, having a, a, a Chinese diplomat on that body, I think, among other things, creates more pressure on the other consultative group members and on the Human Rights Council president and on the Human Rights Council in turn to make sure that they're choosing, you know, real serious, credible experts who will act on their mandates with independence and, and seriousness. But I think the development that's really worth keeping an eye on is especially as the Human Rights Council comes back into session in June, is how the Chinese government decides to advance its mutually beneficial cooperation resolution. Doesn't that sound nice? It sounds so charitable. It's really not. This is the second or third in a series of resolutions the Chinese government has introduced that on first reading really sounds nice and positive and benign, but it's what's not in that resolution that's really worrying. This is a document that effectively removes a role in Human Rights Council proceedings for independent civil society. It really takes off the table the idea of accountability and replaces it with you know, dialogue about uh, best practices instead. I mean, you can clearly see an effort through these documents, you know, which admittedly are not binding, but which wind up having an influence on norms and procedures, you know, to make this a body that's solely the purview of states, that doesn't envision the idea of anybody being held accountable for serious human rights violations, you know, and replaces this instead with essentially a body that does nothing you know, but like let states swap ideas and there's no consequence for serious human rights violators or really an option for people other than government representatives to even participate in the discussions. That, I think, is a very alarming trend. It's hard to see because these are 
you know, fairly Byzantine institutions. And the procedures are, are tough to follow. I always have to ask my Geneva colleagues to translate for me. But I think it's very clear to see that the Chinese government, you know, instead of just trying to, you know, tear the Human Rights Council down or turn it into the Chinese foreign ministry, is instead very methodically and assiduously trying to change how the institution thinks and what the standards are. Are you saying they're trying to basically defang the Human Rights Council? Yes, I think fairly unambiguously. That's the goal is to make it, you know, not just a body that doesn't present any serious challenges to China, but that can't pose a challenge really to anybody and essentially takes off the table the idea that actors other than governments have any role to play or that states can and should be held accountable for human rights violations. You know, and that's an alarming prospect. We're sort of used to thinking about China in terms of its core interests. And a lot of the countries that it's intervening to prevent investigations in are countries way outside its core interests. I mean, places like Syria that wouldn't figure in any calculation you think in Beijing. I mean, why does China care what happens in Syria? It's that it doesn't like the idea of accountability anywhere. <laughs> you know, I think we, and look, we've seen this throughout modern Chinese history that, you know, the Chinese government is constantly thinking, could this mechanism or that practice boomerang on us? You know, could that same treatment come our way? And as the world is talking, you know, perfectly rightly about investigations into the origin and the spread of COVID-19, you know, we've spent the better part of the last couple of years talking about the importance of investigating and holding people accountable for appalling human rights violations against Uyghurs in Xinjiang. You know, and time and again, the Chinese government's response is to say, no, this is an internal matter. External entities have no role to play in this. You know, and again, I go back to the point that these bodies exist precisely because states have historically said this is nobody's business, but ours often with catastrophic consequences for people inside the country and as we now see sometimes outside the country. Let's um, turn to the World Trade Organization now. Uh, Wei Wan, right at the beginning of the podcast, you were talking about China as promoting accountability in the World Trade Organization. But I mean, it's often criticized for not being part of the rules-based order. How does its record at the WTO stack up as compared to other countries? Uh, Really contrary to what we have been discussing about China's role in the other two institutions, uh, trying to uh, influence uh, the different kind of agenda um, and mechanisms. In the World Trade Organization, um, first of all, there are obligations that China signed up to at the time of accession to the WTO in 2001. And China significantly liberalized its markets amended, abolished, or otherwise changed thousands of legislations and regulations to comply with the WTO obligations. Now, there has been uh, criticism about whether China has been complying with um, its obligations um, in a complete manner, but most of the criticism is really about a unilateral allegation. So, for example, the U.S. kept a... um, China WTO compliance report every year since China's accession to the WTO and consistently claiming that China has failed to live up to its obligations. I wouldn't really 
say from my perspective whether there has been violations because that's not for anyone to say to say that uh, it's for the WTO tribunals to adjudicate if there is no adjudication there is no such claims that anyone can make unilaterally now if you talk about violation of the WTO rules we can we can see that most of the cases brought by countries are actually against the United States or the EU not China now, the second part of the story is when you lost a case, whether you actually comply with the rulings of the WTO, so whether you're going to change your rules that has been found by the WTO tribunals in violation of your obligations. Now, country, again, contrary to what the public believes, China has maintained a fabulous record of compliance. I had a book published last year precisely assessing this issue about all of the cases China lost whether China complied with the WTO rules. China complies in 99% of the cases. That record of compliance is much better than the US uh, and the EU's uh, records of compliance. And if you look at the mechanism under WTO, which we call the retaliation mechanism, which is really used by the winning party in a case to retaliate against a losing party if the losing party fails to comply, most of the cases are retaliating the US or the EU. China has not been um, subject to any retaliation cases before. So um, that also is a evidence of China's compliance. So, I mean, I think objectively speaking, I think China has complied. Whether China um, has fully uh, lived up to its obligations when China made at the time of accession, it's not really for anyone to make a unilateral claim. If you believe that there is a violation, you should use the WTO dispute settlement system. It is the US who tries to uh, really kill the system. And now we're talking about withdrawal from the WTO. And, and as, as I mentioned just before, um, China has been a firm defender of the system, trying to rescue the system. But as I said, in the WTO, it's a consensus rule. Every member has one vote. And it's under some of the rules, um, they can actually block the system just because they don't like it. So that was what happened to the appointment of the panel body members, the highest courts of the WTO. And the U.S. can exercise a veto to block the whole process without sufficient member on the WTO's panel body. And, and obviously the panel courts can't function. And the U.S. maintains its position now so that we still don't have the panel body at the moment. Just two quick points. I mean, one, I think it's very clear that the U.S.'s decision to withdraw from the Human Rights Council has uh, certainly made it much easier for the Chinese government to exercise influence in that body. But, you know, Weihan, I'm the first to admit that I know nothing about how the WTO works, and it's it's very interesting to hear this. I will go educate myself. But I also find myself thinking... You know, if you looked at the number, for example, of individual complaints uh, that people tried to bring against the Chinese government through UN human rights mechanisms that failed, or, or, or if you tried to look at the number that had been brought, it would be incredibly low, not because there haven't been violations, but partly because China hasn't signed on to the optional protocols of most of the human rights treaties that would allow people to bring those cases, or when people have still tried to bring those cases, they've been detained for doing that. And so I would just say that at least on the human rights side of the equation, you know, having a low number of cases brought against 
a government is not necessarily an indicator of compliance. And I realize that, that the universe you're talking about may be completely different. Um, but I want to put it out there because, you know, the Chinese government will say we're a super participant and a good citizen in UN human rights mechanisms, you know, when in fact there's a list a mile long of experts waiting to be able to visit. There's a list a mile long of reviews that haven't been properly complied with. There's a list a mile long of human rights defenders from China who would love to be able to go and share their views, but they are blocked from doing so. And in fact, there was a case a few years ago of uh, Cao Shunli, an activist who tried to go to Geneva to participate in one component of a review, who was detained, denied adequate medical care in detention, and then died. So I just want to be very clear about what you know, how compliance can can appear very differently in these. I think in these in these That's different right. institutions. That's right. And obviously, under WTO, it's opposite position. China undertakes massive obligations, so there are massive WTO plus obligations only applied to China. So, which means that WTO members have more weapons against China. So, if they want to bring the cases, they can bring it. So, I mean, hearing you guys talk, it just occurs to me that what happens in these massive institutions is so procedural and so bureaucratic and so hard to understand that we kind of lose the larger trends. But I do know, I mean, that Xi Jinping has been calling for China to lead the reform of the global governance system. Is that some kind of ideological push? Is it something we should read as an attempt to rid multilateral institutions of kind of liberal values that currently underpin them? In each of your institutions, what would that mean? If we have a look at the World Health Organization, I think um, it's not so much perhaps an ideological push concerning health policy or so, but it's a, a try to change how the organization works. Like uh, in 2003 with the first SARS um, epidemic, um, there was quite a push from the former um, director general of the WHO to provide information to the organization also from China or especially from China. But uh, nowadays this changed a lot. The WHO uh, provides uh, information to the world that is based uh, almost exclusively on official data, on data that is being report reported from China and from other governments and it doesn't consider media reports, for example, or other sources of information uh, as much as it should do in, in my regard. This is true also for other countries like from Russia. From Russia, uh, the WHO just publishes information that is official and that is clearly not uh, an accurate representation of the situation in Russia concerning COVID-19. But I think that uh, this whole development has a lot to do with the uh, goals of the Chinese uh, government. And I think it's a very worrying trend that, um, as also Sophie said before, countries are not being held accountable anymore or not as much as they should be uh, held accountable. Um, okay, so Sophie, before you, you get to this question, I'll, I'll just... Um, add an extra one in there, if you don't mind. I mean, doesn't the liberal nature of the UN kind of make it open to an authoritarian takeover? I mean, if you set up a club where your main principle is everyone's welcome, like literally everyone can join, doesn't matter where you're coming from, eventually it's going to be taken over by the person that wants it the most, yeah? yeah well, on some level, yes. And, you know, but there are also good reasons why 
democracies should want this as much as authoritarians. And, you know, Louisa, when you mentioned governance earlier, the first thing I thought of was the, the language that was actually used by the NPC spokesperson in describing the decision to move ahead with national security legislation for Hong Kong. And it's, it's all about improving the mechanisms of governance, right? And I think that tells us a great deal about what Beijing's idea of governance is. You know, Graham, to your point, it's not just about who shows up, but there's a reason there are binding international treaties on human rights, right? The, the whole point is that it's not just all up for grabs. There are standards, there are norms, there are established precedents, and these are the institutions that are meant to uphold those. You know, the enormous challenge, though, is that there are relatively few mechanisms available for actually enforcing those uh, when states don't comply. But, but maybe another way to make the point is to say that, you know, if just about any other government in the world was arbitrarily detaining, uh, you know, roughly a million people on the basis of their ethnicity and their religion, as the Chinese government has done uh, with Turkic Muslims in Xinjiang, I think we can reasonably assume that we would already be past the stage of you know, an outcry and investigation and well underway to some sort of proceedings in which people were actually held accountable, right? Because China is already so powerful within the UN system, it has largely evaded that outcome. And, you know, again, let's just recall why these institutions exist. It's because governments decided that having some sort of external mechanisms to check state behavior was a good idea. And, you know, I think we, most of us want to live in a world, and frankly, I think a lot of people in China want to live in a world in which, you know, they've got some access to redress and justice when they've been wronged. And whether that's by their mayor or whether it's by, you know, some party from outside the country, you know, having some sort of mechanism available matters. But I mean, this isn't just about China. I mean, there's lots of politicians in the West who rail against um, the globalist agenda of these unelected UN bodies um, and argue we should disengage and, and defund from them. I mean, is that as much a part of the uh, the problem you're talking about as uh, authoritarian states? Sure. I mean, I mentioned earlier that, you know, the U.S.'s decision to withdraw from the Human Rights Council is deeply problematic. The fact that, you know, neither the U.S., or China is a party to the International Criminal Court. You know, I mean, you know, the, the, the participation is for sure uneven. Often the motivations are hardly pure <laughs> or, you know, with, with the noble and exclusive goal of defending, you know, all that's enshrined in the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights. You know, nobody's got a perfect track record. But again, that's why, you know, some bodies should exist to try to do this. You know, I really do cringe at the idea that instead of abiding by international human rights law as it's written, you know, the governments that have, you know, no intention whatsoever of upholding that are instead rewriting them. I mean, here's a good example. Uh, you know, China has been a party to the Convention Against Torture for decades now. Uh, and when China gets reviewed under that treaty, the first point that has gotten made again and again and again is that the Chinese government's own definition of torture is still not in conformity with that international standard. What I want, and I think what we should all want and should want for people inside China, is that the Chinese government standard conforms to the international one, not the other way around. 
And Wei Huan, you were talking about how China is trying to increase its influence over the way the WTO is run. I mean, what, what would it like to see? I kind of need to be more accurate about what I what I meant. What I meant is that China tries to play a more positive and a bigger role in this organization. But in terms of influence, I don't think that China can actually by itself influence how the organization should look like in the future. With the U.S. still in the system, frankly, I don't think the U.S. will actually withdraw from the system. Um, with all of the uh, big powers in the system, I don't think China can influence how the system should operate in the future. But obviously, China tries to make a more positive contribution to the system by, for example, contribute to the negotiation of, for example, the digital trade rules and trying to uh, also join the most recent uh, agreements concluded under the WTO, what we know as the trade facilitation agreements, trying to make contribution to the negotiation of uh, agricultural market access and industry products market access. So all sorts of contributions that China tries to make. So um, I think China has been obviously playing an uh, increasing role in that regard, trying to influence uh, these rules. Um, but I don't think that China would have uh, influence as significant as the other big powers yet. I mean, when you're talking about making new standards, there's also this issue of China kind of creating new global bodies as well. And I think we've seen that with the AIIB, China's new bank, uh, which is offering huge amounts of lending, you know, beginning to rival the World Bank. Wei Huan, do you think that Beijing is also kind of looking to remake the existing order by creating new standards, new bodies. So what you're talking about is the Belt and Road Initiative. I mean, there has been a lot of debate about it. Um, and one of the issues that has been debated was wh whether China trying to use Belt and Road to replace the WTO. And so to, to turn the WTO, which is the US-led or Western-led organization, into a China-led international organization, but I, I, my view has always been that the Better Roads Initiative has served a very limited or at least relatively limited role uh, and purposes than the World Trade Organization. The, the Better Roads Initiative is really an investment initiative and the trade part of it is really just secondary to the investment part of it. Now, obviously, there is a geopolitical issues there, um, but in terms of what the Bannon Road Initiative is trying to do is trying to kind of uh, support China's outbound investment into the Bannon Road countries and regions. By doing that, to establish um, China's influence in the region, uh, in the meantime, to create opportunities for, for the exports of China's goods. First of all, the countries involved in the Bannon Road are still not comparable as the, the, the WTO membership. And secondly, the trade and investment involved in that in, in, under Bannon Road would not be comparable to what we had in the world. Uh, and, and most importantly, most of the major trading partners uh, are not a party to the Bannon Road initiative. So um, I don't think it's really going to replace the World Trade, trade Organization. It will be something that China will continue to do, but I, I still think the influence will be kind of limited. Now, I still think that this is the last point. I don't think the Bannon Road Initiative is really sustainable in the long term. Um, it requires a lot of government funding 
and low interest lending, um, as well as um, uh, insurance. So those kind of stuff to support uh, China's initiative. And frankly speaking, the investment environment in all, most of the countries, the, the host countries, is, is politically unstable. Um, so there has been a high risk in relation to the Baron Roads Initiative. And how long that can last, it's really hard to see. At the end of the day, the Chinese government needs to make a calculation of the balance between how much uh, kind of political influence this would actually bring back to China against the economic laws um, and, and because the Chinese government is basically sponsoring all of the investment with the higher risk. So finally, I'm going to ask you all the same question, a quick question to finish off with. It's the big journalistic question from where you sit in the organization you are looking at. Do you think China is trying to win control of the global order? And if so, how long do you think it'll take for China to achieve its vision? Uh, Weihuan, maybe you start, then Hinnett, then Sophie. Yeah, as I have already amply demonstrated, I don't think China is trying to take control of World Trade Organization. And I don't think that is even possible. And I don't think that the U.S. will withdraw from the system. Now, with or without the U.S., uh, either way, I don't think China would really have a chance to um, take control of the system. As I said, that was decided by the um, the institutional function of the system, the decision-making function of the system, as well as the fact that every government will have their own uh, economic interests in the system. So uh, it's going to be a collective decision and there will be a political compromise from every government. I think concerning the World Health Organization, um, it's quite clear that um, the uh, influence of China is growing and uh, I would say it's growing. Uh, this increase is also caused uh, by other countries um, in not uh, cooperating well and um, retracting from the organization as the United States, for example, does. There is a room for China to step in and um, I think it will weaken the organization and also the trust that is um, especially necessary in pandemics like this uh, will erode, unfortunately. Um, I'm not very optimistic that in the near future there will be a change to that. I think the Chinese government's agenda in, UN, in the UN human rights ecosystem is painfully clear. What isn't is whether other governments that have a stake in maintaining the existing system can and will organize the kind of counter pressure that will be necessary over the coming decades to protect the system as it is or strengthen it. That, I think, is, is the outstanding question. All right. Sophie, Weihuan, Hinek, thanks for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. Great. Lovely to talk to thanks all of you. Thanks for the invitation. You've been listening to the Little Red Podcast, bringing you China from beyond the Beijing Beltway. Thanks to my co-host, Louisa Lim, and to our guests, Sophie Richardson, Wei Huan Zhou, and Hinek Feldwich. This episode was edited by Andy Hazel. Background research was by Julia Bergen. Our theme music is by Susie Wilkins, and our cartoons and gifts are courtesy of Seb Danter. Bye for now.